have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. Continue our New Testament reading through the Gospel of John. The Lord Jesus Christ pronounces a benediction upon you in this passage, which is wonderful. John chapter 20, 24 through 29. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. Chapter 5, Micah receives a vision of the coming Messiah. He sees from afar the one whom God had promised all the way from the beginning, who would triumph over the mysterious serpent, who would be the seed of Abraham in whom the nations were blessed and in whom Abraham would be given a name. He sees the seed of David who was promised an eternal kingdom, a throne upon which he would sit forever and ever unto the glory of God. And now he considers the kingdom, the beneficiaries, the subjects of that kingdom and their life amongst the nations and what it will look like. So with that, we can turn to verses 7 through 9 of chapter 5. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, what a rich deposit we have in 
Scripture and the word which has come unto us, indeed, which has resounded from generation to generation and even of old was powerful to save. As your promise was set forth from the very beginning as your design uh, to save and to bless a creation and a world which turned its back on you. This is the testimony which has come down unto us even to this very day, hundreds of years later, but standing as participants in the new age ushered in by the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the one whom Micah saw from afar and the people gathered around him whom Micah saw from afar have come into view. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bless your word unto us that we might receive it with faith. That we might behold your purposes to bless and be in awe. We might behold your judgment on display and tremble and give thanks in the Lord Jesus Christ for the better portion which has come unto us. Posture us aright, Lord, before your word. Guard my heart and my mind, for only you can bring forth life. This you are pleased to do through your word. It is a wonder to us. Please do it. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The floods going on in Kentucky are dreadful. Have you, have you seen them? Have you seen reports of them? Uh, in some ways, they remind me of the, the wildfires in California that would come every year we were living out there. A rain is a weighty blessing. Fire is a weighty blessing. And these blessings can become a curse in the blink of an eye. The rain that waters the earth and gives life can also flood the earth and bring death. Fire, which warms and protects, can also burn and destroy. It's the same water. It's the same fire. But the results are opposites. One life and one death. Micah continues to envision the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees it from afar and he says, those of the kingdom, the remnant, those preserved in the true remnant, those joined to the true remnant, the Lord Jesus Christ, those under his rule and his reign, they will be like dew and rain from heaven. They'll be like a lion among the animals of the forest and the herd of the flock. That's a strange pair of images, isn't it? The life of rain, the death of lions, the blessing of dew and the curse of claw. But recall what Simeon prophesied of Jesus when that old godly man received the fulfillment of promise that he would behold the Messiah. What did he say to Mary? This one is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel. It's a similar image that we encountered in Peter when we were going through that epistle. Peter cites the Psalms, the stone rejected 
is the cornerstone. The stumbling block is the rock of salvation. In C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, the Greek tutor, the fox, with his great learning, yells out frustratedly, how can something be both a blessing and a curse? Life and death, it's all nonsense. Nonsense. The heights of his learning only led him so far. Difficult, yes. Nonsense, no. Because the church's life in this world is empowered by the life of Christ. The church's life in this world is empowered by the spirit of Christ. Christ, the stumbling block and the rock of salvation. Christ, the rejected stone and the firm foundation. Should we be surprised that the same rising and falling, blessing and curse, life and death attends the effects of the presence of the church in this world that is passing away? We're invited to consider the strange tension of our existence as the subjects of the kingdom of the beloved son and the sharing of the tension that was everywhere on display around him. As the glory of God was displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ and two very different responses erupted everywhere around him. So consider this morning, church, our life as dew and our life as lions. First, the church is dew and rain. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. What's the effect of dew and rain upon plants? Israel is an agricultural community and one with a climate that's not very different from that climate that I saw in San Diego. It was a long, dry season, utterly dependent upon the seasonality of the rains. And one thing which sustained life even in the midst of the dry season was the dew. For us, dew is a mild annoyance when you decide to run outside in the grass in your socks in the morning. For them, dew would have been an indispensable part of water being brought to plants, sustaining them when there were no rains. Dew refreshes, rains refresh. Dew brings nourishment, rains bring nourishment. There can be no life without, there can be no flourishing, there can be no flowering, there can be no fruit without them. They're indispensable to the earth for bearing fruit. How on earth does the church of Jesus Christ play this role? Of rain. Well, first, note that we're not the author of life. We're just the messengers. (laughs) Rain is sent. Dew is sent. Everywhere in Scripture, Jeremiah 5, Deuteronomy 11, hails not the rain, but the giver of the rain. Trusts not in the rain, but the one who sends the rain. If there is a life of blessing to be found among us, if there is to be a power that is found among us, you can be sure it doesn't originate with us. We are instruments in the hands of the Creator and Redeemer, the one who sends the rains, the one who sends the dew. 
But how do we serve as these instruments? In a couple of ways. First, we bring heaven's blessings to the world by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look around. What other institution has this message? Every other institution has a message of futility at the end of the day. And that's the most innocuous iteration. Many are far darker, far more malignant. The gospel of self-actualization. The gospel of self-authenticity is the, the way to life is to make sure that in the end of the day, you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I was true to myself. But what if you yourself are a raging jerk? <laughs> to be true to that person is no life. <laughs> so Lord Jesus Christ's gospel uniquely on display in the church that accomplishes something fundamentally different. Man can learn much from nature. Man can learn much from general revelation. Man ought to frame his life by the light of nature, and he can expect much relative blessing as he does so, but he cannot expect eternal life. The one who frames his life by the light of nature cannot expect salvation and eternal life. This comes alone as God's gift imparted freely through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this message is uniquely deposited in the church. Not just as those who have the content of this message, but those who have the necessary accoutrement to see it worked out. These are the keys of the kingdom. Who has the keys of the kingdom in this world? You don't. <laughs> the church does. It's a weighty responsibility. It's a weighty blessing. But blessing it is. The power of the gospel which Paul heralds in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes re resides as the unique deposit given unto the church. And not only that, Christ promises that it is the church which he will build. But the gates of hell will not prevail against. It is to the church that he gives the keys of the kingdom. The proclamation of God's whole counsel. The proclamation of Jesus Christ raised triumphantly from the dead. Where true fruitfulness bursts forth. As God fulfills his promise to bless this sad, weary, and curse-laden world. Children, have you ever seen a patch of brown, dry, dead grass? All you need to do is look across the street at my lawn. What happens after a few days of steady rain? What happens to that remarkable, although hidden, <laughs> lawn? After three days of steady rain, green bursts forth. Life bursts forth. A tapestry of death becomes a tapestry of verdancy, vitality, life, and color. God says the gospel alone is the true rain that comes down and brings the true green of eternal life to dead hearts, to futile hearts. 
This is the unique ministry of the church. It is to be found nowhere else. This is why it's such a great tragedy when the church loses focus on what she is uniquely called to do. First and foremost, she must teach the whole counsel of God for nobody else is doing that. There are lots of people attending to temporal needs and by all means we're about to see we are too to attend to temporal needs. But if that replaces this, the world dies. There are lots of agencies seeking to do relative good. Lord be praised. They are a blessing of His common grace. There is one entity alone that is called to stand against the vanity, (laughs) to stand against the futility, to address matters of sin and death with the power of the Gospel, the power of the resurrected life attending the whole counsel of God. When the church abandons that, it's a tragedy. Because nobody else is doing it. Nobody else can do it. And so when she shirks her mission, the world suffers. The world languishes. The world dies. We don't look like much, do we? This doesn't look like much. Sorry, you don't look like much. (laughs) I don't look like much. This doesn't look like much, but neither does do. Neither do the gentle rains. And yet what attends it? Life. And this by the promise of our God. But our life of blessing, our life of dew and rain to this world has a second aspect. And it's this. The people of God bless the world by their good works. This is the explicit point that Jesus makes in Matthew 5. The Lord Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rains on the just and on the unjust. Do you hear the comparison there? What does He liken to the rains which bring forth life? He likens our deeds of love He likens our prayers for those outside the church to these gifts of sun and rain that God gives so graciously and abundantly to all. Luther is often quoted as saying, God has no need for your good works, but your neighbor does. (laughs) I'm not sure if he really said that, but there's truth in that. God doesn't need our good works. Our righteousness is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The good works that adorn our lives, are evidence of His power. God has no need for them properly speaking, but our neighbors do, and God is pleased in the economy of His wisdom to use that evidence of the life of Christ on display in our lives to bear witness to His glory as He continues to extend good to whom? Well, we'll see in a minute. We're freed to do good gratuitously. Abundantly, out of the abundance that He has bestowed upon us. We are freed to love gratuitously, even in the face of hostility, because of the security of love poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, more than just a freeing unto, there is an empowering unto. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared before him beforehand that we should walk in them. The promise of God is that these things will be made manifest through us. Thus, it's not just a rational exercise that the church is engaged in, but rather a clinging to God's promise and an empowerment by that promise such that we have a hearty expectation that good works will abound from us and actually bless our neighbors, indeed those who persecute us. What's the, ref- what's the effect of rain on a parched land do on your face in the morning? It's refreshment. In this world of dog-eat-dog, <laughs> this world of zero-sum games everywhere on display around us where the usual mentality is the degree to which you win, I lose. That's why I have to destroy you. The gospel economy opens up a whole new pattern. We've won! We're not going to lose. We don't have to shrink back if others appear to be winning. And indeed, we can lay down our lives to make sure that others win because we have been assured victory. It's not a zero-sum game for us. The economy of the gospel is an economy of abundance that empowers true good, passing through sinners unto those who are ill-deserving. These are the heavenly blessings, free and mighty gifts that rain down from our infinitely good God, which we have the joy of participating in by faith. And Micah highlights the source and the reason as well, doesn't he? Look at how verse 7 ends. The dew does not wait for man, nor grow anxious for the Son of Man. Why does God send the rain? Why does God send the dew? It doesn't ultimately depend upon men. God is going to find something, some reason to send good. He's going to have to find it in Himself. For all have sinned, none are righteous. Vipers' venom fills our mouths. The hearts of men are wicked, and yet God does good. For this rain does not depend upon man or wait anxiously for the Son of Man. Why did God send the gospel of grace? Why does he send his beloved son? Out of the infinity of his love. (laughs) Out of the boundlessness of his goodness. At the end of the day, this is why. This is the grounding reason for good coming to this sad earth. That non-dependence upon man is a further expression of Matthew 5. Once again, hear it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you find Maisie tucked away somewhere, Maisie, my daughter, reading War and Peace, or David Copperfield, you'll likely think, yes, she is her father's daughter. For we know Michael to be annoyingly obsessed with such things. (laughs) Incidentally, if you see her melting down in the middle of service, you can also know, yes, she is indeed her father's daughter, for he is infinitely fussy. You can make no mistake, she is always my daughter, but in those two moments, she is shining it forth with plainness. The truth of her being my daughter is supremely evident in those moments. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ teaches here. 
about the love and the good that we purpose, not to those who can do us good in return, but those who have sought to harm us, those who seek to do us ill. For this is who God is, the one who does good to those who sought to do him ill, the one who renders blessing as we rendered unto him curse. This is how he has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in the stead of sinners, who became a curse for us, such that his righteousness and the supreme blessing of God would pass unto us, those who purposed to do him harm. And so in a similar way, the Lord Jesus Christ says, this is uniquely who your Father is. This is uniquely who you are becoming and indeed encouraged to be. Those who do good, not out of a sense of having something to gain by it in the eyes of man, but those who do good because you have been done good in the Lord Jesus Christ, who did you good while you were an enemy. The world knows calculated kindness, doesn't it? The world will render good unto another if she can perceive her own benefit in it. The church alone knows gratuitous kindness. The church alone has the power to render good to complete strangers because of the good rendered unto us as strangers. To render good to enemies because of the good rendered unto us as enemies. May we be made to reflect our Father in this way more and more. May we more and more look like the Lord Jesus Christ in this unique way. It is the Lord instructing us to pray for those who persecute us. It is the Lord instructing us to do good unto others who would harm us that I think we're particularly challenged in a couple of different ways. And I want to just make one practical observation. If you're anything like me, the moments to do good are not always obvious. Do you find this? You ever find yourself sitting in your house like, how do I do some good to people? Where, where are all these people in need of good? I never see them. <laughs> it's a hard moment, right? We just spent two years basically learning to stay away from each other as good. It's like, that was not good. <laughs> not, 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 not at the heart of it. Like, we need one another. But for two years, you'd be like, no, no, look, the best way you can love me is by staying away from me. It's like, okay, we're going to have to rethink some stuff. It's hard now to consider how do we do good unto others? Where are my neighbors? They like to hide. I like to hide. Do you like to hide? I like to hide. Who doesn't like to hide? It's way easier to be left alone. This is not good. But I think what the Lord instructs us there in Matthew 5 puts us on the right path. Notice how he draws attention to our prayers. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray. You can pray for them. You can pray for your difficult co-workers. And I assume you're not so difficult co-workers. I don't think we would discriminate. You could pray for your difficult neighbors, and you're not so difficult neighbors. You could pray for your difficult family, and you're not so difficult family. If you don't see your neighbors all that often, that doesn't stop you from praying from them. And one thing we might include in our prayers is asking the Lord to fulfill this very promise. 
Lord, grant to us the opportunity to do good unto others. Grant to us the wisdom to see where and how to do good unto others. Grant to us the courage to do that good in that moment as I take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. It is difficult to do good. We get this wrong in so many different ways. (laughs) But it is plain that God has purposed our good works to be refreshment, blessing in a world that is passing away and in a world that only knows calculated kindness at the end of the day. If God has promised to do this, he does not begrudge you asking him to do this. In fact, very often, that's the very path he delights to use to bring it about. Next, we can consider, and more briefly, the church's victorious lion. Micah goes on. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples as a lion among the beasts of the field, as a young lion among the herd of the flock, who whenever he passes by, he tramples. Whenever he tears, there is none to rescue. Now, I don't want to subsidize any of your tendencies to be a bad neighbor. Calvin actually goes out of his way in his commentary to be like, look, this doesn't mean we should be cruel. And I think that's insightful. (laughs) You're like, Calvin, obviously. But is it that obvious? Like, won't we seize upon pretty much anything to justify our fleshly tendencies? We go into that conversation and we do some real damage. And we walk out being like, you know, that's probably what it meant by be a lion. It's a difficult vision of the church. Interestingly, the picture of lion isn't used positively all that often. Trust me, I've spent a lot of time talking about lions, thinking about lions in my day. (laughs) Scripture doesn't use lion as blessing all that often. In fact, lion is a curse. Leviticus 26, 22. If Israel disobeys, the Lord will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Lions are frequently curses. You see it in Deuteronomy. You see it in 1 Kings. You see it in 2 Kings. So in what sense is the church a curse? In what sense is the church judgment upon the world? And does this contradict blessing? seems like Paul uses a similar image in 2 Corinthians 3. He writes, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's the same aroma. It's the aroma of Jesus Christ. Or a verse earlier, the fragrance of the knowledge of of God. And yet, this one aroma elicits two reactions. From one, those who are being saved, it is the aroma of life. And for the other, those who are perishing, it is the aroma of death. Now, we should be honest for ourselves. Sometimes we just stink. Just me? (laughs) Sometimes it's not our kindness. That is a curse. Sometimes it's our cruelty. It's not our truthfulness in love. It's our deception and hate. We've got that in us. <laughs> and to take these texts to somehow subsidize that tendency would be wrong-headed. But there is something different at work in us. And that's what 
Micah. That's what Paul is drawing attention to. There is the aroma of Christ about us, especially as we are speaking the truth, especially as we are flickering forth imperfectly, yes, but truly that love for neighbor. It's the same scent, but notice the two different responses. One unto life, one unto death. Have you ever gotten sick during a holiday? I had the unfortunate experience of coming down with the flu on Christmas Day. <laughs> the little guy, the family had gathered, and all the holiday smells, the ham, the pies, the eggnog, rich smells of life and feast became to me nauseating smells of sickness and a wretched curse. (laughs) As Christ is set forth in the proclamation of the church, as the life of Christ empowers our life of love towards our neighbor, some receive of it as life, as refreshment, as blessing, and some receive of it as death. For some it becomes a feast and life, and others it is sickness. The nauseating whiff of weakness sickly, duplicitous kindness, those hypocritical Christians. They probably disagree with me politically. It's gross. The good deeds of the church refracted through that one lens that dominates their whole life, this world. Competition for this world. Even the life of Christ can become a curse. And so the church is both the dew of blessing and the lion of curse. But lest this image only have curse about it, there's also two lovely observations for the church's life in it. First, you can notice that the two primary entailments, or the first primary entailment, the first primary meaning of the church, which is life as lion, is that she partakes of an unstoppable power. The dew and the nations are contrasted in appearances, right? Dew among the nations. Great things and small things. (laughs) What looks like much? The nations or the dew? The nations look like much. (laughs) Not the dew. It's the nations that bring life. But who's dependent upon whom? Well, the nations are dependent upon the rains to subsidize their entire existence for what brings crops, what establishes an economy, what enables a society, what is the basis for a political arrangement that will guard and ensure that that continues? Rain. (laughs) One looks like a lot, one looks like a little, but one is really the source of life. This contrasts the heart of the matter, and I expect there's some polemical, political theology going on here. Assyrian particularly loved lion imagery. She loved it. You can look at the courts of Ashurbanipal, his kingdom, Nineveh. He's got his palaces lined with iconography, these vast and ornate depictions of him as king doing what? Guess what? Guess what he's killing? A lion. (laughs) I don't think it's a coincidence that the lion wins here. He's engaging with the political theology of Assyria, this king rising up in godlike power, destroying a lion. Yahweh saying, the lion's going to (laughs) win. Why? Because the lion partakes of that same divine power that we saw displayed in her king. 
It's not a coincidence that this blessing of dew and this blessing of lion parallels the two points we made last week, which were what? I failed. What? Gentle and lowly, mighty to save. Dew of blessing, lion of curse. It's the same reality played out in the kingdom. The power of the king, the humility of the king, played out in the reality of the kingdom. Life is due. Life is lion. The lion here indicates that the church partakes of an unstoppable power. <laughs> but not just that. She has at her disposal a remarkable courage. This lion's moving about, not given much concern about the sheep. <laughs> the sheep here are the political opponents. The sheep here are those men who arrayed themselves against Daniel, who said, I'm going to throw you to the lion. And Daniel said, it doesn't matter, because my God made the lions. It doesn't matter that I'm outnumbered. It doesn't matter, because the one who sent me here will preserve me here. It doesn't matter how much visible power you have on your display because what animates our life as the church is the one who has been seated in the invisible places. The one who equips his people with the power that's in the Spirit's land, just like Kanye says. There's a courage that this lion evidences that is not dissuaded by the apparent opposition that's everywhere around him. I'm reading Dracula currently. If you read Dracula, I'm amazed at the four men who stand against the vampire in a graveyard at two o'clock in the morning. I would not stand against a vampire at two o'clock in the morning. I get scared in my bedroom at two o'clock in the morning. It's eerie, isn't it? Like that two to three o'clock hour, you wake up, you're like wide awake, you're like, why is everything so strange? These men are found in a graveyard evidencing remarkable courage in the face of an inexplicable evil. Why? Because they're servants of truty, beauty, truth, and goodness. The church is a servant of the truth, the good, and the beautiful. And that forges a fellowship in our ranks that partakes of a courage that is indeed otherworldly, such that we can stand with courage in some remarkable capacities. This is the church at her best. Everybody likes to think about the church at her worst. It's easy to think of the church at her worst. Admittedly, it's fair in its place. But the church at her best is the martyr being asked to renounce Christ and saying, Christ has never been unfaithful to me. How am I going to be unfaithful to him? Send me to the lions. This is the otherworldly power working itself out in true courage in our midst by faith. And this is the confidence that we can have, that we know the end of the story. The church wins. The church is victorious. That's how he ends. Verse 9, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. This is tapping in to that ancient prophecy in Genesis 49 made of Judah. We know that the seed of the woman is going to win. We know that the offspring of Judah is going to win. What's made remarkable here is that we participate in his victory. That the one who has been raised, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering this world, is our victory, enjoyed now by faith. For this is the victory that has overcome the world. 
I trust you finished it in your heart. Very good. Our faith. (laughs) This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, our participation even now in the victorious one on display in the resurrection, in the ascension, assures to us that in the face of every apparent failure, every apparent triumph of wickedness surrounding the life of the church will give way to the truth of the matter, that Christ's people triumph in him, that Christ's people will be made to triumph in him. You don't engage in too many contests assured of the outcome. You sign up for the marathon hoping you'll finish. You start the PhD hoping you'll finish. I'm sure you could fill in the situation from your own life. There aren't too many endeavors that we begin knowing, yep, I'm going to (laughs) win. The church has afforded the unique opportunity and gift to engage in a struggle in which we already know the outcome because our head has triumphed and we are his body. Because our husband has triumphed and we are his bride. Because our king has triumphed and we are his people. This is the power in which you stand, O church. Go forth and love. Go forth and hope. Go forth and believe. For these things are sure. Join me in prayer. Father, attend our hearts with the gift of faith, that we may receive of your word with benefit and blessing, that we may be empowered to walk, not by sight, but by faith, that we may see and delight in the purposes which you have set forth from time immemorial of triumphing in the Lord Jesus Christ and bringing blessing to an ill-deserved people. Help us to see these things, Father. Help us to live by these things, Father, day by day. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.